HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Saved by the Blingy, the podcast. I am John DeBerry, and this is a podcast where we take a behind-the-scenes look at uh, my cocktail book, Saved by the Bellini, uh, which is a love letter to the 90s as told through a bunch of cocktail recipes. <laughs> and this next interview is with uh, someone who I consider to be a mentor and a tremendous influence of mine and a huge disinspiration, and I just... I, I can't say enough good things about her. Her name is Julie Reiner. She is legendary in the cocktail world. She's uh, responsible for such, such bars as Clover Club and um, Ladies, and she's written books, and she's just, just one of the, the titans of the bar industry. And uh, when I was doing research for this book, I wanted to look at, obviously, 90s drinks, and one of the most iconic 90s drinks was the Appletini. And I was looking through uh, New York Times archives, and I found this article from like the year, I think it was like 99 or 2000, and lo and behold, she's one of the sources in this article about the Appletini, and she goes into her recipe and everything. So I thought it'd be really cool to, to bring her on and talk to her about her experience working as a bartender in the 90s, as well as kind of her specific take on the Appletini, which does show up in, in, in my book as a sort of modernized-ish version of the Appletini that, that, that she was talking about. And uh, so uh, Julie uh, is, yeah, again, I just, I, I never worked for her as, as a bartender, but I, I kind of feel like she, I, she's really in, important to me as, a, as an inspiration and sort of as a guide in my own career. So um, I think that probably my, my fangirling over her <laughs> maybe comes off in this interview. And so I hope you'll enjoy it. Cheers. Okay, well, Julie, thanks so much for joining me. It's a been, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like you know we've been we've been friends for a while, but um, the reason why I wanted to have you um, <clears throat> come on and, and chat with me today is because uh, when I was doing my research on the Appletini, uh, I was digging back into the New York Times archives, and there was this article about the Appletini from I think it was like June two thousand. Uh, and I was reading all about it, and then there was a quote from you uh, in it about about like what you know what people were drinking and what you know kind of what uh, what it was like to be <clears throat> serving this drink at this time. And you know, my book wasn't really about drinks that appeared in the '90s; it was more about like pop culture in the '90s. But the Appletini is kind of 
kind of considered to be one of the most, um, I don't know, iconic 90s cocktails uh, out, out there. And so I had to include it. And, you know, and then hearing, you know, one of my, my mentors and someone who I really look up to uh, quoted in an article about it, uh, this made it all the more, more, you know, salient for me. So I just want to, you know, kind of get hear from you about, um, you know, both about like what kind of the Appletini sort of like was for you, you know, b- back when you were serving it. Um, and then maybe also just talk a little bit about bar, like bar culture in the nineties. Cause I think that there's, I'm learning that it's that the, the, the kind of nineties being the dark ages of cocktails was, is sort of a little bit of a revisionist history and chatted with Toby Sacchini last week. And, and he had a pretty like strong stance for the the nineties actually being pretty solid in terms of cocktail bartending. So I just love to hear your take on all, on all that too. So I guess why don't we start with, with the apple teeny and yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my, my story uh, of how it came to be. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that, you know, the nineties, it, what it, what it really was, was that it there was such a wide span of what people were doing behind bars. I mean, for the most part, right. it was like sour mix on the gun and, you know, roses, lime juice and nothing of high quality necessarily. Um, you know, in most places, but then there were pockets of things happening and, and where people were like, Oh, you know, I can put fresh juice in this and it tastes so much better. And, you know, the realization that, uh, using fresh fruit actually is, makes a delicious drink. (laughs) So, um, you know, those were all like brand new ideas that were just sort of starting at the time. Um, but I was managing the bar at C3, and uh, a, a woman uh, by the name of Kate Monig, actually, who was an actress, uh, who later was on The L Word, um, she used to come in to C3, and she had come back from L.A., and she sat at the bar, she's like, hey, I had this apple martini in L.A., it was so good, can you make an apple martini? Um, and she was like, one of these like very dynamic lesbian women that was like for you of course (laughs) um and uh and I but I had never had one and I was like well let's see you know if I were to make an apple martini how would I want it to taste and I just sort of thought to myself I was like I would want it to taste like I was biting into an apple but with a kick you know um an apple pucker existed but I didn't know it existed and I had never tasted it. So what I did was I took Granny Smith green apples and I infused them into vodka and I let, I basically just had a bucket and I let it sit in Granny Smith green apples for like a week and a half. And then I strained that out, um, which gave me this really delicious apple tasting vodka, you know? Um, you know, at that time also, it was like a lot of these flavored vodkas that were out there just tasted very artificial and, and not very good. So um, so I kind of, so I started with that and then I took that and I added a little bit of a pomo to it um, and a splash of, and like, I think I stirred that and strained it and then topped it with like a little bit of Martinelli's apple cider um, just to pull out the apple even more. And then I floated an apple slice in it. Um, and that was my apple martini. Uh, you know, and suddenly, yeah, Rick Marin from the New York Times was asking people, you know, it, around the office, have you heard about this apple martini? Because, you know, the word of word of this drink being huge in L.A., I guess, had traveled to New York. 
Um, and somebody in the office was like, oh, there's this there's this girl at this bar called C3, and she makes this really awesome one, and it's very bright and fresh and actually right. tastes like apples and not like a watermelon ra- Jolly Rancher. <laughs> um, and so he came in, and then he wrote about it. Um, and that was sort of like, you know, from it was a, ver- a turning point in my career. You know, it was the first time I was in the New York Times. Um, and, you know, Dale DeGroff, I guess, saw it and also heard that I was doing some things because he was at a a theater right next door to C3, which was in the West Village on Waverly and McDougal. (laughs) Um, And he came in and was like, hey, kid, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, And I didn't I was like, who are you? I don't know who you are. Uh, So that was how I met Dale. Um, but yeah, that was basically the story of my apple martini. And then I, you know, came to understand, oh, this apple pucker stuff. Um, and then I was like, well, mine is so much better. Uh, so that was sort of, you know, the trajectory of kind of how I thought about drinks and how I created cocktails. Um, and, you know, I was really doing a lot of, you know, my own syrups and just trying to take a more culinary approach to cocktails, right. uh, which in New York City at that time you didn't really see very often. Uh, as opposed to San Francisco, where you know I moved to New York from San Francisco in 1997, where I had been bartending, and you know fresh juice and you know recipes for specific drinks was common in San Francisco at the time. Uh, but when I got to New York, mm. you know New York at that point was very much behind San Francisco uh, when it came to the quality of the cocktails that were being served over bars. That's interesting. So when you when you came to New York in '97, um, like what was that? Like where did you first start working, and and was it something where like, you know, I feel like there's a there's kind of a trope of like when you started a new place and you're like, well, my old place, we did it this way, and people kind of re- <laughs> resent you for it. Was yeah. it sort of like a culture shock? Well, or? I mean, honestly, it was more it was more like um, you know, in San Francisco, there were a lot of women behind the bar, um, and. So I, you know, I was bartending at some various places in San Francisco. And then when I got to New York, every place I went into, you know, they were like, oh, are you sure you don't want a cocktail waitress? You know, and trying to find an actual bartending job, you know, because it was all men behind the bar and all male managers. Um, And, you know, I basically had to say, hey, I can bartend circles around these guys. Why don't you just put me back there and I'll show you? (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I worked at a place called Bayamo, which was a Chino Latino spot on Broadway, um, very close to NYU, which has been a clothing store or something for years now. But um, that was the first spot I was at. Oh, is that the, the, the place with the neon awning? Uh, I don't, with all the, I don't all the remember lights. if it had a neon awning, but it was like, it was close to like Waverly and Broadway, you know, it was, it was right there. Right. Um, so that was one of the first spots that I was at. Uh, and then I was also at a place called La Strega that was like an Italian restaurant in Soho, um, and before I got the job at C3, where a friend of mine from San Francisco was the general manager of the restaurant. So she reached out and was like, hey, I need a bar manager. Um, do you want to come and, you know, check it out? And it was such a cool spot. It's still there. And, you know, it was just like this tiny little bar in the back of, you know, there was a restaurant in the front and the bar is in the back. And you had to walk through the restaurant to get to the bar. Um and so, you know, that was sort of 
ultimately, you know, where I ended up being for, for quite a while until I got too much press. And then <laughs> I thought it was my job. <laughs> I thought that it was my job to make the bar busy and to make them money. But what it turned out was that, um, you know, the owner, her family owned the hotel, the Washington Square Hotel. Um, and so it was sort of like the restaurant and bar was almost like a, just a toy for her. You know, mm. they were like, here you go, honey, here's a restaurant for you. <laughs> but they made all their money on the rooms, you know. Um, and so when I started getting all this press for the drinks that I was doing, uh, all of, you know, New Yorkers want the best of everything. So right. they would come in and, you know, uh, and you'd, and walk. It sort of became like a walkway through the restaurant to get to the bar in the back, which really upset the chef and the GM. Uh, <laughs> and then I was making a ton of money, which also upset the chef and the GM. Um, so they went to the owner and they told her that I was going to open my own place and steal all of her clientele. Uh, and I got fired for doing too good of a job. Wow. <laughs> Quote, in front of the chef and the, and the restaurant manager, which was also so weird. That's like Dale's favorite story. Um, <laughs> Julie, Julie gets fired for making, getting too much press. For being too good. Yeah. yeah. That is really funny. And, uh, and so that's, and after after that firing, was that sort of the process that began what ended up opening Flatiron or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I had been talking to, you know, one of my friends who lived, was in San Francisco and she was the head, head bartender at the Red Room, which was a bar that I learned how to bartend at. Um, and she was from New York. Her mom owned uh, a bar in the West Village um, called Fanny's Oyster Bar or something. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, at Michelle Connolly. And so we started talking about getting a place open here. And she had some friends who owned the Zinc Bar, um, which was on Houston uh, and Wooster. And so she, um, she, she anyway, w decided that she and I, that she would help. And we, you know, started working on getting a place open. Cool. And that was, and that was Flatiron Lounge, which, uh, we opened in 2003. Yeah. Wow. Cool. So we're actually going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back with more from Julie. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. 
And we're back uh, with Julie. And Julie, I'm really curious to hear, like, um, kind of like, you know, I, I sort of consciously avoided a lot of, like, you know, cocktail history in my book, but I'm, I'm kind of using this podcast as a way to explore, like, kind of what drinking culture, I mean, not drinking culture, but really cocktail and, like, craft cocktail culture was like uh, in the 90s. And I'm just curious to hear, like, are there, you know, the Apple Teeny obviously is sort of like one of the hallmarks and kind of like what people throw out now when they're talking about 90s drinks. But are there other like cocktails from from that era that, you know, you think deserve some, you know, either rehabilitation or rediscovery um, the way that some of these drinks have already? I mean, there I mean, there are only so many, you know, right. <laughs> Uh, you know, I do feel like, you know, uh, Simon Ford and I uh, were talking the other day because we're doing a seminar together at the Rome Bar Show about like cocktail culture in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and we were talking about the Stoli Doli, which was like there was certainly like this this move towards infusions that occurred where people mm-hmm. were like, oh, you know, I worked at the Capitol Grill in San Francisco for a while and like they had like this giant thing on the bar that we would cut and fill with pineapple and then pour vodka over it. And, and then we would just, it had a tap on the bottom and you would just take some out, shake it up and serve it, you know, mm-hmm. which was like a pineapple martini basically. Right. Um, but you saw a lot of that, which I think is interesting because that was sort of like the beginning of this like utilization of fresh ingredients and, it, you know, infusing them or macerating them with booze, you know, and, and that was certainly something that kind of started in that, in the early nineties. Um, but as far, you know, I mean, it was, it was a lot of like Long Island iced teas and, and Cosmos mm. and woo woos and, you know, a lot What's of those woo-woo? kind of, oh, vodka, peach schnapps and cranberry juice, <laughs> <laughs> of which, course it is. you know, yeah. I mean, in, in our effort to like try to resurrect uh, some of these nineties drinks and that drink had such a fun name, you know, I was like, Oh, maybe we can like remake the woo woo and actually make it taste good. Make it but good. I yeah. had to like, I had to nix that. I was like, no, it still tastes like shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, and, and so I'm, it, it's interesting about like the, you had a request from a guest and they, they had a, a, a West Coast experience with a drink and then you sort of, you know, reconstructed the apple teeny from, not from a memory of tasting it, but just from sort of like how you think a drink that's like apple and martini should taste. Like, cause right. you'd, you'd imagine at the time, you know, you'd think that like the, what people would be clamoring for is like De Kuiper, you know, sour apple, you know, all the sorts of like liqueurs plus a little bit of vodka, maybe some sour mix. And that sort of like sounds like a sort of stereotypical nineties version of the apple teeny, but your version seemed to be quite like you could throw that on a menu today and people would be like, well, that's, you know, that, that drink just came up, just came, came about like two years ago. You know, it's, it's feels very up to Totally. Well, which is what I did at Miladies. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. except that what we ended up doing, so I took that original recipe and I was like, you know what, I want to revamp this because Miladies had, you know, it was a dive that was there for mm-hmm. so long and was open at that time. 
Um, and I used to go there after bartending at C3, you know. Um, and what, but what we ended up doing was we, we infused the Granny Smith green apples into gin and vodka. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we used like a little bit of apple brandy in it. So we, you know, we kept the, the basic sort of form of the drink, uh, but updated it a little and it, but it still has that same, the goal of what was, you know, bright, fresh apple, but still a martini. Uh, and then we used green glitter to make it look like Great. a pucker martini, but yes. it drinks like an actual <laughs> classy apple martini. <laughs> glitter is definitely called for. Uh, in that. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have like two, di- two different colors of green that we put in there along with the glitter to make it super fun and look, it looks like the nineties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, and so I feel like you could possibly, you could make a case that you were kind of the inventor of the apple teeny, but it seems like you're, it's sort of like a lineage of, of a recipe that sort of existed in the past and you put, put like a, a sophisticated kind of craft cocktail spin on it. Do you have any under, do you have any knowledge of like where this drink actually was like originated or is it just one of those kind of folk things? Like the, a lot of the cocktail histories where it's just sort of like, if you look too far in the past, it just all gets kind of hazy. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, and, and honestly, like I don't care to argue with people about it either right. because I don't, I'm just like, whatever. I don't it's need not credit. Important. I mean, you know, I think that that, that article that Rick Marin did was like the first one of its kind. And there were other people who also were doing, you know, some cool apple martinis that were written about in that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as I know, like the pucker one seems to have originated in LA, you know, just mm-hmm. fr- from what I know at the time. And I think it, it also, you know, if you look into when Apple Pucker was released, you know, mm. uh, because that was really what it was sort of centered around. Right. That makes sense. Um, yeah. But I mean, at C3, like, you know, the, the woman who owned it uh, was, she was really into wine and a lot of like, she had a lot of like esoteric spirits on the back bar that I had never seen and that weren't in a lot of bars. There were eau de vies that she had, um, mezcal, like there was some wow. cool stuff that I had never seen. And, you know, a, a funny story about that bar, um, Ted Hay, who, you know, who wrote mm-hmm. uh, Forgotten Cocktails and was a, you know, is a cocktail historian. He was there he was in New York City shooting a movie called Riding in Cars with Girls with Drew Barrymore. And he was staying at the Washington Square Hotel. And he would come into the bar every night after he was done shooting because he'd be on the set telling them, oh, no, that is 1955 and that plate is 1962, you know. Wow. Uh, he's, and he would come in and he'd sit at the bar and he would point at various bottles on the back bar and say, make me a drink with that, like some raspberry eau de vie, you know, or, you know, it, 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 these were things that I really had never grabbed for on the back bar, but he would come in and push me to make something with these, these bottles. Um, and then he would drink them no matter whether they were good or not, <laughs> but he, <laughs> but he really like, pushed me to try and do different things, you know? So Ted Hay was certainly, um, you know, partially responsible (laughs) for my growth as a bartender at that time. Yeah, I love that. I mean, the fact that you included Pomo in the apple Mm -hmm. martini is pretty... It's pretty cool. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it was it was something that was on the back bar that, you know, I, I mean, I have some photos of me 
uh, working that bar. And I, you know, like I've zoomed in to be like, look at these things that were there. Nobody else had them, you know? Um, it was some cool stuff. Yeah. Um, and I mean, maybe this is a tough question to, to answer, but like, are there, you know, I think that like, you know, it's, it's easy to say that like bartending has come a long way, uh, in the past, you know, 20 years, uh, you know, the craft cocktail kind of like quote revival and all the speakeasies and the fact that you can now get a really decent Negroni pretty much anywhere you go. Is, is there anything from, from the nineties, like either just like from like a, like a technique perspective or like an attitude or, um, you know, we talked about ingredients, but like, you know, anything they kind of like that you think that we kind of lost from, from, from that era that like should be sort of embraced or, or resurrected. Oh gosh. <laughs> I mean, not that I can, <laughs> not that I can think of. <laughs> okay. That's a good answer. I mean, you know, it was not exactly uh, a time for high quality drinks at most places, you know. Right. I mean, there why really do, wasn't. Why do you think that is? Do you think that they just like cared more about volume, or? Well, I think it's a combo of things. Chefs at that time were not supportive of bars, bar bartenders at all. Right. Uh, I mean, as a sweeping generalization, like they were like, you know, I'm the star and. You know, which was part part of the reason that the chef was so mad. You know, yeah. at C three, it was just like he, I'm supposed to be the star of the restaurant. You know, and so that was just sort of the mentality of of chefs at the time. Um, and and so there was a lack of culinary support with the bar, and also mm-hmm. just like owners not understanding. You know why you would want to put more money into drinks when you could just use Rosie's lime juice and sell. It's just, it's easy to be lazy and use shitty ingredients and people didn't know any better, you know? Exactly. I mean, you only, you only know what a good margarita tastes like with, when you have one and then After suddenly you you're like, one. Oh, yeah. I can't ever have one of these, you know, something from some bottle that you buy at the store. That's like margarita mix, you know? Right. Um, so it wasn't until people, had these drinks, you know, which was what made Flatiron Lounge such an instant success. It was just, they would come in and be like, oh my God, this is the best drink I've ever had. And it yeah. wasn't like we were, you know, there was not a ton of like mind blowing cocktails necessarily, but we were using fresh squeezed juices and syrups and bitters. And then we, and we were measuring our drinks and, you know, looking to classic recipes to try to, you know, elevate the the level of quality behind the bar. Um, and once once Flatiron Lounge opened, and you know, at that time it was sort of like Milk and Honey was open, mm-hmm. but even you know, Sasha wasn't really doing what Sasha ended up doing at that time. You right. know, um, when he first opened, you know, you talked to Dale like when he first opened, it was like a coffee shop, and he had some drinks, but it wasn't the level of quality that he ultimately became known for there. Um, that was something that you know hmm. he was learning, you know, and and implementing, you know, around that same time. Um, but Milk and Honey was so tiny, and you, right. it was hard to get into, and you know. But shortly after that, you know, suddenly there were other bars that opened and Audrey was working with Dale and after, you know, the Rainbow Room closed and then Dale went to Blackbird uh, and then Audrey, you know, was at 
a couple different bars. Um, and like Dale sent Audrey and I on some celebrity bartender thing, you know, that we went and worked together at, a, at an event. Um, and it was sort of like this small group of people, all who cared about putting the best thing they possibly could in a glass, that we all kind of started meeting one another. Um, mm. You know, and it was Evan Clem and Evan Freeman. And there was just a handful of us um, that we would go to each other's bars. And, you know, Sushi Samba was actually a, a spot that they were, everything was, they were muddling everything. <laughs> it was, <laughs> but it was cool because it was actually fresh, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the way that it was. And then it, you know, it, it quickly... Uh, into the early 2000s, it quickly increased as more people came in, tried yeah. these drinks, and then were like, oh, we should do that too. You know, the employees only guys were sitting mm -hmm. at the bar at Flatiron when they were getting ready to open employees only. And, you know, so yeah. it, it quickly uh, multiplied. Yeah, that's super interesting, just like the way that the kind of the momentum build in the early 2000s. Yeah. After. I mean, yeah. I tell people all the time too. It's like they're, you know, it, it, so much for me was like the right place, the right time, the right idea, mm -hmm. you know, I, cause it, I could have opened Flatiron Lounge or did what I was doing at C3, you know, at a bar in middle America somewhere and nobody would have cared, but it was New York city, which is global. So, you know, it, it was a, it, it grew very fast. Right. You have that stage. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. It's really interesting getting to hear more about um, the Apple Teeny and everything. So, um, yeah, thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you, John. Saved by the Bellini is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.